Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're a guest of ours this morning, we just want to say welcome. Thank you for being here this morning with us. T- thank you for taking time out of your Sunday morning to come and spend some time with us. Today is Ugly Sweater Sunday, so if you're new, uh, no, we don't always look this good. Um, we try, but not always. Um, and for those of you joining us online, we just want to say welcome. Thank you for being with us. Can we just give a hand for those people who are here with us online today from all over the place joining in? Well, the Christmas season is upon us. It's snowing outside finally. It's beautiful. And man, I love Christmas time. And one of my favorite things to do at Christmas is to actually go through the gospel accounts and read the Christmas story. There's just something about this time of year, uh, reading these stories and just having them come alive in my life and jump off the pages. And so this morning, I thought it would be fun if we could just kind of sit back, relax, and, and, ha- and, and read through some of these gospel accounts. Maybe this is a tradition for you to do on Christmas morning, uh, to read through the birth of Jesus. Um, but I thought it'd be fun for us this morning just to kind of put us in the Christmas mood. So... Uh, the scriptures won't be behind me for just this section. We're going to be in Matthew. Um, but I just encourage you to kind of sit back and listen and, and get into the Christmas spirit here. So join me, if you will, in, in just listening and reading through this. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. I hope you're in the Christmas spirit now. We'll continue. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Ubijah. Ubijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Amos. Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. That's a fun one. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Elikam. Elikam was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father, uh, father of Ehud. Ehud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Merry Christmas, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our reading this morning. I think we're done. We can go home um, now that we're in the Christmas spirit. 
what is this about? Why does Matthew go out of his way to write down all of these names that we really don't know how to say and seemingly seem unimportant to us? Like, why is there this whole 17 verses that we have to skip over, we typically do, to get down to verse 18, which says, and this is the birth of Jesus and its account. Like, this is what I want to get to. Why does Matthew get all of these names in our way when we're trying to read about the birth of Jesus? Well, what I want, to, want us to understand this morning is heritage and lineage is important to us. In our culture today, it's important to us. I, I know about my grandpa. I know about my great-grandpa. I might know a little bit about my great-great-grandpa. But beyond that, for most of us, that's kind of where it stops. But for the Jews... Heritage, lineage was a huge deal, was a huge deal. Where you came from was so important. Are you tied in to Father Abraham, right? What tribe are you from? And this was a big, big deal for them. And beyond that, what Matthew is doing here in the first 17 verses of of his letter is he's helping people understand and he's trying to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah and he has, like, the legal right to be so. In other words, what we read in the Old Testament, in books like Isaiah and in Malachi, we read that a a Savior is coming who will sit on the throne of David. Who will sit on David's throne. So before Matthew even attempts to begin to teach us and tell us about who this Jesus was... He wants to get one thing straight for those, those readers, is that this guy has the right to be Messiah because he is in direct line of David. He is from the throne of David. Therefore, he can fulfill the role of Messiah. It can, can be this guy because if Jesus was not in the lineage of David, he could not even be considered Messiah whatsoever. It was so important for these readers to understand that. So as Matthew's writing this letter... And Luke does the same thing, he just does it a few chapters later, he doesn't start with it. But as Matthew's writing this letter, his readers of this letter would have gone, okay, there's some legitimacy here. Okay, let's let's hear about this Jesus. So to understand why Matthew starts his book this way, we get that. What I don't get is what he does inside of this lineage. The names that he puts in there. They actually don't make a lot of sense, specifically four of them, of why he writes them in. Now, are they part of Jesus' heritage? Yes, they are. Are they part of his lineage? Yes, they are. But why does Matthew name them when he absolutely did not need to? See, if, if you didn't know, when what, those names that I just read, four of them were women. Four of them were women. And for the Jews, they traced their lineages via the male. It was through the men that they traced their lineages through. And so it was important to be able to trace the lineage of Jesus through the males. That's just their culture. That's just what they did. But in that, Matthew names four women. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, this is a big deal because by naming these four women, he absolutely 100% would have been highlighting them. The readers of the time could not have read through that lineage without recognizing that there's four women in there. And by seeing that there's four women in there, it would have completely drawn the reader's attention to those women. Now, every good Jewish boy and every good Jewish girl would have 
would have known the stories of the scriptures. So by reading and highlighting these women, it would have drawn attention to their stories. And I can guarantee you that the readers would have known the stories of these four women. Now, that would make sense, right? That would make sense if, if the stories of these four women was, you know, amazing. If it was these four incredible women who did incredible things for God. Like, if you had Mother Teresa, like, somewhere in your family line, like, you would probably want to share that with people. Like, yeah, my great, 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 great aunt's college roommate was Mother Teresa. And, uh, you know, no big deal, NBD, right? Like, it's just in my family line. Right? It's there. But the thing is, these women's stories is not that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. Their stories are scandalous, to say the least. There's some of their stories are downright deplorable. And yet, Matthew completely highlights and draws attention to these women and their stories. And I want to talk about that this morning. But first, let's look at who these four women are. So the first thing we read, the first woman's name that we read is that we read that Judah had two sons by Tamar. Tamar was the woman. And you might read that and go, okay, what's the big deal? Now, if you don't know your Bible like really, 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 really well, you probably have never heard the name Tamar. It comes from us all the way back in Genesis. Uh, But there might be a few Bible scholars in the room like, oh yes, Tamar, I remember that name. And Didn't she have kind of a messed up story? Just a little bit. So Tamar, so it says that Judah had two sons by Tamar. Now, that doesn't seem like any big deal on the surface, but what you might not know is that Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. Let that sink in for just a minute. Judah is Tamar's father-in-law, and they have two kids together. And that might be bad enough. That might seem bad enough, but it's the way in the story that how Tamar gets pregnant is kind of interesting. See, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons, and his son was actually downright evil. So much so that God's like, you know what, I'm going to allow you to die because you're, you're so evil. And so he ends up dying, but the problem is he ends up dying before Tamar ever has any kids. Now that's a problem because now Tamar is not in line whatsoever to receive any inheritance from Judah. It, it has to go through the children. And so she wants to get married. She wants to get married even into this family. So she tries to get remarried to one of her husband's brothers. But nobody wants to marry her because it's not financially beneficial for them to marry her. So they won't marry her. And so she's kind of like left out of the family. And she's left out of the inheritance of the family. But she really wants to be in the family. She really wants this inheritance because she really wants her lineage to continue. And so she comes up with this great idea. She decides to dress herself up like a prostitute. I'm going to keep this as PG-13 as I possibly can this morning. But she dresses up like a prostitute. And she puts a veil over her face so you can't see her face. And she finds out that Judah's on a a trip. And so she knows where he's going. So she runs up ahead of him and stands on the road. And when Judah goes by, she solicits him. And as she does so, she becomes pregnant. And he has no idea it's his daughter-in-law. So he goes on his way, and a few months later, she's showing, and Judah becomes very angry that she's pregnant because her husband is dead, and so if she's pregnant, she must have been sleeping around. And so he's so furious, in fact, that he, he, he wants to have her killed. And by law, by Mosaic law, he can. 
So he decides to have Tamar killed. And so he, he drags her out into this very public place with a whole bunch of people around. And he, he, he condemns her for being pregnant, and so she must have been sleeping around. And by doing so, she brings shame to the family, shame to his name and the family's name. And so he's going to have her executed. But, but right before she's about to get executed, she's got like kind of this cloak on. She stands up and she pulls out a staff, which is Judah's. And she pulls out some personal belongings and she says, the father of my child is the owner of these. And she reveals them and Judah's like, what? Now, you know, to his defense, he thought it was just a prostitute, right? Like, what? And, And she doesn't die. And now you have this kind of awkward moment, right? This awkward family moments where Judah's like, oh, dang. My bad. My bad. Right? So what we see, though, what Matthew's highlighting to us is that in Jesus' lineage, in his family tree, we have a major sexual scandal. Major sexual scandal in Jesus' lineage. Let's jump to the next name, Rahab. A more popular name, if you don't know the story of Rahab. She was a citizen of Jericho. And, and, and so the children of Israel sent some spies into Jericho because they were going to conquer it, and they're about to get caught. She hides them. She protects them. And so because she does so, they're like, hey, when we come back and conquer this city, we're going to leave you and your family alive because you were kind to us. So they come, they conquer the city, and, and, and she gets married to someone from Israel, and the rest is history, except for what you might not know is that everywhere else in Scripture, except for this verse in Matthew, Rahab has something attached to her name. She's known as Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. She was a prostitute. That's what she was known by. That's who she was. That was her occupation before the conquest of Jericho and it falling. And so she's known as this prostitute. So in Jesus' lineage, we have a major sexual scandal and we have prostitution within his family tree. And and Matthew, again, he's highlighting this. By naming these women, he's pulling their story out. It's it's interesting. The next name, the next female we read is Ruth. Now, there's this book after her, Ruth. I mean, a lot of people are like, Ruth, oh my gosh, I love Ruth. She's my favorite Bible character. Oh, she's so sweet, Ruth. She's like a Hallmark movie. She just sits at the feet of Boaz, just sits there. They fall in love. Don't you dare drag Ruth's name to the mud. Ruth. Now, we have this kind of royalty, this just, we do love Ruth. She's an, she was an amazing woman, and she has a whole book in the Bible. But the Jewish people didn't quite revere Ruth the same way we do. There's a reason for that, and here's the story of Ruth. So there's this woman named Naomi. And her and her sons are, are in, this, in the promised land, and they're in Israel, and there's a major famine. And so her husband dies, and they have no food, so they have to leave the land. And they, they go to this place called Moab, okay? And, and Moab was a place of idol worship. They did not worship God. They worshiped idols. And in fact, um, Israel, it was written in their laws that they were not to marry people from Moab. But... They live there, they live there long enough, where Naomi's sons, they end up marrying Moabite women. And the famine continues, and the sons die, 
And so you have Naomi left with really nobody, no one to take care of her. And so she decides she's going to move back to Israel. And, and one, one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, says, hey, I'm going to go with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to serve you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to go with you. And, and the rest you can read in, in her book. And she goes back and she becomes this incredible woman. And she marries this man named Boaz, who we read about, who the dominoes fall. And is actually the great-grandma of King David, who you know, Jesus is in lineage with. So why, why is Ruth named? Why, what, what's deplorable about Ruth? Well, nothing about her per se, but two things come to mind. The first is that she absolutely 100% would have been an idol worshiper before she moved back with Naomi. Because she, she has a saying that like, your God will be my God, and so she kind of changes who she serves, but she was an idol worshiper. And so we have this idea that even in the lineage of Jesus, we, have, we see idol worship. It's even more than that. You see, Ruth was a Moabite. And if you don't know where the Moabites come from, um, buckle up. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty scandalous. You see, the Moabites come from someone named Lot. And Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And Lot and Abraham, the, Abraham has to rescue Lot. There's this backstory that goes back and forth. But they finally kind of go their separate ways. And, and Abraham says, Lot, you choose the land where you want to live. And then I'll go the other way. And so Lot goes and chooses his land. Well, Lot has two daughters. And his daughters don't have husbands. Uh, but they want to continue on the lineage of their father. And because they don't have husbands, they're trying to figure out what to do. And then one of the sisters has this great idea. She says, hey... I have an idea. Let's get dad totally wasted. Let's get him super drunk. So drunk that he doesn't even recognize us as his daughters, and then we'll seduce him. And that's exactly what they do, twice. And they each get pregnant. And one of those sons' name is Moab, where the Moabites come from. Now, this was so deplorable. God looked down and against this so much so that written into the law was that the Moabites were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. In other words, because of their heritage, the Moabites weren't allowed to come into the presence of God. It was despicable how they came to be. And yet, we find a Moabite in the lineage of Jesus? Incredible. These people that were outsiders, that, that, that their history was so deplorable, so broken, and yet one makes its way into the lineage of Jesus. And let me help you understand, this is not by accident. That Jesus, this is the family that Jesus chose to insert himself into. The history that he chose to insert himself into. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But the last women, woman that we read, we actually don't read her name. It just says that David had a son by Uriah's wife. It's interesting, Matthew doesn't even name her. I think there's a reason for that. I think he wants to draw attention to this fact. I think he doesn't want the readers to forget the sins of their superhero. David was like the be-all, end-all. David was the greatest king who ever lived, according to Israel. See, the story of this Uriah's wife was this, is that David... His men were at war one day. They're out at battle. They're at, during a season. It was the season of war. Apparently that's one of the seasons. And his men are out at war and David's like, yeah, I don't feel like going into work today. He doesn't go. 
It was customary. The kings were supposed to go with the men, but David decides not feeling it. So he's out on his roof and he's walking around and he sees this woman bathing out in the open. Her name is Bathsheba. And he's like, I want that. And so he sends a messenger to bring her into the palace. And at some point he recognizes that this is Uriah's wife. He knows Uriah. Uriah is one of his leaders in his army. But he sleeps with her anyways. And then a little time later he finds out She's pregnant. Can't hide that forever. All right, eventually, there'll be a baby. Right? And the problem is Uriah is not home. He's out at war where he's supposed to be. And David's thinking, he's like, okay, people are going to recognize. People are going to start asking questions. She'll totally throw me under the bus. So I got to fix this. So he calls Uriah, and he has him come home. And he says, Uriah, you've been working so hard. You've been working. You're, you're so great at your job. I want you to take, you know, uh, take a week off. I want you to go to your house, go to your wife, Netflix and chill, and, you know, in, enjoy yourself. And Uriah, having real convictions, having real character, says, no, I can't do that. He says, I'm not going to go to my comfortable home. I'm not going to go to the arms of my wife when my men are not in their comfortable homes in the arms of their wives. I'm not going to do that. David's just like, curse you, Uriah, for your morals. So the only thing that David knows what to do is have Uriah killed to cover his sin. And so that's exactly what he does. He gives word for Uriah's men to pull away the, from the battle when it's at the, at the height of the battle so that Uriah is surrounded by the enemy and he eventually will die. And that's exactly what happens. So what we have is we have these four stories of scandal. I mean, we, we, have, we have a sexual scandal. We have, we have prostitution, right? We have a Moabite idol worship. We have infidelity and murder in the lineage of Jesus. Why does Matthew highlight this? He didn't need to. He just could have listed the men. And the readers would have gone, okay, uh-huh, 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 okay, comes from David, all right, let's talk. But he doesn't. Uh-huh, uh-huh, and Tamar, Tamar, T- Tamar? It's interesting, right? And then he goes on, reads and reads and reads, and what? Rahab, prostitute, Ruth, a, a, a Moabite in the lineage? Why does Matthew do this? I think this is really important for us to understand. This, this 17 verses that we typically skip, let's be honest, right? We typically skip to get to the good stuff, and yet there's so much in here, and Matthew is intentionally drawing this out. You see, the first thing is this. I think that Matthew is writing this because he wants the readers to know. He wants us to understand that Jesus chose a broken family to enter into a broken world to redeem a broken people. See, Jesus... He inserted himself into this family. Like, God could have chosen any one of David's sons. David had multiple sons from a different lineage. He could have chosen, but this one, this one, any of the tribes of Jacob, any of the tribes of Israel, but, but Judah, through this, like, this is no accident. Because God wants us to understand, he inserted himself into a broken family. Entering a broken world 
to redeem a broken people. See, Matthew is showing us that this is, these are the people that Jesus is from and that these are the people that Jesus is for. You see, when you look at Jesus' ministry, who did he hang out with? Who did he do ministry with? Prostitutes. People with sexual scandals surrounding them. Right? These were the type of people, the outsiders, who felt like their past, their history, or maybe their lineage excluded them from the work of God. Jesus never comes and does ministry with the people who think that they got it all together. The people who are righteous in their own eyes. Jesus is like, cool, do your thing. But who does he come to? He comes from the outcast and the broken, and that is marked by his entire ministry. See, I think Matthew wants us to understand that your past does not disqualify you from God's future. Your past does not disqualify you from God's future. You look at these women and and their stories and, man, they're not great. They're definitely scandalous. And yet God chooses to use them in his own very lineage. It's incredible that people with pasts, people with sin in their backgrounds, I know, crazy, right? Those people are out there. They're people of sin in their background. You may not believe that. And yet these are the people that God chooses to do incredible things through. Because it's God's future. He chooses to use them. And, and I've heard it so much. I've heard it so often. Josh, you, just, you don't understand where I come from. You don't understand my family history. You don't understand my family. You don't understand my past. You don't understand like, the things my dad used to do to me and my mom when he was drunk. You don't understand like these addictions that my mom chose over her own children and where she'd use her paychecks instead of taking care of the kids. You don't understand the things I've done in my own, to my own family, in my own family. Brokenness and hurt and heartache. You, I can't be used by God. Maybe, sure, okay, like Jesus loves the whole world and so I guess he has to love me by default, right? Um, but beyond that, beyond that, like God would never choose to use me in anything. It's too broken. But look at the history. Look at the past. See, God's plans are bigger than your sin. God's plans are bigger than your sin. And he came to redeem. He came to redeem us. You see, that was the whole business of Jesus, was redeeming things that were broken. Taking the broken pieces and putting them together. And the broken pieces of your past and your history, they're not bigger than God. And your sin is not bigger than God's plans. And I think there's something else here that Matthew is trying to scream out in these 17 verses that he wants us to understand. And that is this, is that Jesus comes from a scandalous past to amplify his scandalous grace. Jesus comes from a scandalous past to amplify his scandalous grace. I love this quote. I found this a couple of weeks ago. It says, the lineage Matthew lines up in chapter 1 is consistent with the grand narrative of Scripture. The lineage Matthew lines up in chapter 1 is consistent with the grand narrative of Scripture. See, what is that narrative? What is this grand narrative of Scripture? It is this thing called grace. It is this thing called grace. That what I love about this is even in the lineage, even in the boring details of 17 verses we skip over, we, we see this thread weaving through the story. And this thread is this thread of grace. That their sins did not disqualify them. 
right, that God used them to bring about salvation to the world. The scandalous thing called grace. So many of us feel like we have disqualifiers today. God can't, God wouldn't, God won't. But God wants to use you today, your story, for the purpose of this idea of scandalous grace, this story of scandalous grace, that it would be shouted to the world. Because if you had it all perfect, well, then we don't need grace. What is grace? What is grace? It's something I think we really have to grab a hold of this morning and understand. This, this is what grace is. This is what grace is. It's us choosing sin over God over and over again. Grace is that sin, like a cancer, it must be dealt with and destroyed. Grace is us having no way to deal with that sin as it continues to ravish us every day. Grace is the God of the universe loves us in our deplorable, grotesque, violent lives and in our hatred of him. Grace is that same God stepping out of glory and into the weakness and brokenness of humanity. Grace is God coming in the meekness, the weakness, and the humility of a child. A child that was swarming with brokenness and scandal from the moment of his conception to show us that he indeed relates to us. Grace is that man, Jesus, never succumbing to the sin around him, though it surrounds him like the stench of rotting corpses. It did not touch him as he continued to serve us. Grace is the Son in an act of love for you, in an act of obedience to the Father, in a single moment takes onto himself all of the sin in the history and in the future of the world and becomes spiritual sewage in the presence of God. Grace is God then unleashing all of his judgment, justice, and wrath meant for you and me into one singular focused moment in person, Jesus Christ. Grace is God then declaring that your sins and mine have been punished and paid for by the actions of somebody else. Grace is because of that action, you have been made a co-heir. You have been brought from death to life, from rags to royalty, from death to a co-heir with Christ. Grace is love poured out on you that has nothing to do with you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. This is what it's about. This is why Jesus comes. He comes from this scandalous past. Now, that sin of his past never touches him. It doesn't stain him. But this is the lineage, and this is the family line, and this is the family tree that he inserts himself into. And I think it's completely intentional for us to understand that he relates to us to us to understand that he came from people just like us for people just like us and for us to understand this concept of grace that even in all of their brokenness and all of their sin and all of their scandal God still uses them to further his kingdom to bring about the Savior of humanity. 
I love this quote I, I found the other day. It's by one of my, just one of my personal favorite modern day theologians. His name's Preston Sprinkle. And this is what he says. He says, this is why your divorce, your addiction, your enslavement to porn, or your years of sticking your finger down your throat to match some arbitrary standard of beauty can all be woven into the fabric of God's plan of redemption. God doesn't cause sin, he mourns it, he despises it, but through his gracious power, he's able to use it, and no one and no sin can outrun God's grace. Maybe that's you this morning, amen. Maybe that is you today realizing it for the first time, or maybe you've heard this all before, but today it's actually clicking in your heart. Paul writes it like this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Did you hear that? I want to say that again. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to what? To be sin. Not just to carry your sin. He didn't just nail it on the cross. He became your sin. He became your porn addiction. He became your drug use. He became your addiction to alcohol. He became the brokenness in your marriage. He became the abuse that you inflict on others. He literally became it. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that like you shine, like God's righteousness falls on you like the sunshine. No, that you literally now exchange that and you become God's righteousness. Do you understand that if you are in him, you are the righteousness of God? Why did Matthew highlight this stuff? Why does Matthew highlight this in verses 1 through 17? To show us that even though our lineage is reprehensible... God invites us into royalty. He invites us into royalty. See, at the point of Jesus is where our history, right, our lineage is exchange for a future, for a heritage. At the point of Jesus is where our lineage is exchanged for a heritage. And what heritage is that? First of all, John writes, In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the rights to become children of God. You see, we trade our lineage for Jesus' lineage. We become children of God, and that changes who we are. But Paul writes this in Romans. Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs... Heirs of God, and listen to this, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, at the point of Jesus, our lineage is exchanged for our heritage, and that heritage is being a co-heir with Christ, an heir of the kingdom of God, that in him, That is who you are. And I believe that's why Jesus came from the family that he came from. That that might be amplified and screamed out that we understand. This is maybe who you were, but I have something so much better for you. A heritage for you. And this is the gift that's offered to you this morning, today. 
and maybe you've never heard this before, maybe Christmas for you has just been this, right, this kind of just tradition, this, you know, you see the church, maybe you've seen the nativity, and it's like, okay, that's, yep, Jesus was born, Mary was there, Joseph was there, a bunch of donkeys and sheep were apparently there, right? Okay, this is, that's it, that's, that's what Christmas is. That's not what Christmas is. Christmas is Jesus bringing this scandalous thing called grace to us, changing our lineage to a great heritage in him. And this morning, if you're hearing that for the first time, I want to invite you into this family, that, that you might be in him, that you might say, yes, that's, that's the family line I want. And some people in this room, like you've heard this a bunch, but it's never taken root in your heart. You're still looking in the mirror and seeing your lineage. You're still looking in the mirror and seeing the scandals. You're still looking in the mirror and seeing the things that have been attached to you, like which were attached to Rahab. And that's all you see. You don't see what you have become, which is the glory of God. And I want to challenge you this morning that when you leave here, you understand who you are in Christ, that you don't have to walk and sin at all anymore. This is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you relate to us. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you, God, for this thing called grace. Thank you, Jesus, that our past does not disqualify us from your future for us. God, you know we don't deserve that at all. And yet you pour this thing called grace out on us and it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with you. I pray that our hearts could hear that again for the first time or maybe for the actual first time. That your spirit would open up our hearts, open up the scriptures for us to see your great narrative, your great beauty. God, and really what Christmas and this season is all about. Lord, let us experience you for the first time again and again in our hearts that we may grow deeper in love with you. God, let us never forget your grace, God. Let us never forget your grace, God. And that we are not people who are self-righteous, but we are people who are God-righteous. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.